1: Something I want to make very clear at the beginning of this program is that I do not have all the answers. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to insist that you must agree with me or otherwise you're not a good person. I'm just a guy who's doing his level best to think as clearly and independently as possible during a time of crisis. And I'm encouraging my listeners to do the same. Now, do I actually do any good on a day-to-day basis? I don't know. I want to believe I do, right? I mean, that's that's probably just simple self-preservation at work there. I want to think that what I'm doing here matters at some level, but I never really know for sure. So I'm not saying, poor me, I just don't know. I'm, what I'm saying is, I feel that there is uh, there's a need for people to speak out and to encourage one another, first of all, to, to stand on your principles, to know what your principles are, to be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply you know what you're against or what makes you angry. So that's why I do what I do. And I'm going to mention this just in passing. Every day I publish show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And in those show notes, I have links to the sponsors who make it possible for me to do what I do. So whether I'm doing any good or not, you know, I'm, I'm leaving that judgment call up to you. The fact that you're listening probably means that you're finding something worthwhile. If you do find value in what I'm doing here on a daily basis. Please let my sponsors know that their message is reaching your ears. That's all I'm asking. So I've got some fun stuff to talk about today. We're going to delve a bit into Western civilization. And I know for some people that's kind of a dry topic. Why why would you talk about that? But if you are even just a casual student of history you're going to notice that Western civilization has contributed a great deal to the world, but it's not without its weaknesses as well. And some of those weaknesses are easier to exploit than others. I'll talk more about that in just a bit. Now, when it comes to to finding voices that I trust or that, that I think are trustworthy concerning current events, the list is pretty small. There are commentators, there are a few journalists out there who I listen to or who I read That uh, I I trust them, not because I think they have all the answers, but because they either have principles that have been consistent. In other words, they're not just tossed to and fro by every little shift in the wind. Well, now I feel this way, and somebody validate me. Uh, These are people who are well-read, who understand history, who understand economics, for instance, and are doing their level best to try to help shine the light of truth as opposed to simply, uh, you know, gain control over people. It's a big difference. In particular, I like to pay attention to what Doug Casey is saying about many of our current events. Now, I followed him for years, so this isn't something, I just found him the other day and he seems to be a nice guy. He's, he's, so, he's so kind. No, it's, it's a matter of I've read this guy's writings for a long time, and I think he really makes a lot of sense. And I want to share with you some of his thoughts on the difference between free markets versus centrally planned economics. And I'm not saying you have to agree with him. Even if you disagree, you'll still be wiser. You'll still be better informed for having considered what he has to say. This is an interview that was recently done with International Man. And uh, it's titled, How Economic Witch Doctors Convince Everyone They're Neurosurgeons. Now, since we're experiencing some economic pain right now, or at least uh, we're, we're experiencing some economic instability, this might be a good thing to know. An international man who is interviewing Doug Casey starts with this observation. The average person doesn't care about economics, but to the extent that he does, he only reads mainstream publications like The Economist or editorials in The New York Times. Now, in these publications, the average person will find so-called economists advocating upside-down and destructive concepts like negative interest rates, that's where they charge you for keeping your money in the bank, uh, banning cash, debt-fueled consumption, government spending, rampant money printing as cures to economic ailments. I think we can certainly think of some politicians who think that way. And if those methods don't work, or if they inflict damage, The establishment economist's response is to simply call for more money printing, more debt, even lower interest rates. So they asked Doug Casey, what's your take on conventional economic thinking and methods? And Doug Casey says, well, frankly, most economists today are only political apologists masquerading as economists. Now, he says an economist is somebody that describes the way the world works how people go about producing, consuming, buying, selling, and living their lives. But that's not, however, what most of today's PhD economists do. Instead, they prescribe the way they would like the world to work and tailor theories to help politicians demonstrate the virtue and necessity of their quest for more power. So as a result, legitimate economics barely exists today. And what passes for economics has a very bad reputation and it's well deserved. Doug Casey says economics has become degraded. It's not quite a laughing stock like gender studies, but it's on a level with political science, which isn't a science at all. Now he says every individual has vastly differing likes and dislikes as well as wants and needs. But these so called economists like to treat people as if they were standardized atoms. They think that they can manipulate people as if they were chemicals and treat the economy as something they can heat up or cool down. And they're the ones who decide what the masses need. He says economics has become an excuse for central planning and economists have become social engineers. Now he also says economics is taught in colleges as if it were a subdivision of mathematics, but it's not. In fact, he says it only has a limited amount to do with mathematics. Rather, it's a division of philosophy. It's a moral study that looks at how people relate to one another in the material world. Economics has been turned into the handmaiden of government in order to give a scientific justification for things that the government, which naturally seeks more power for itself, wants to do. Listen to this next part. He says... In fact, every person should be his own economist. That's because you owe it to yourself to understand the way the world works and to understand human action, to use Ludwig von Mises' phrase. So they follow up with a question here. International Man says, well, mainstream economists are obsessed with complicated models and charts as they try to maximize GDP. By contrast, free market Austrian economics is not focused on how to centrally plan the economy, but rather on human action in the face of scarcity. Austrians aren't concerned with complicated models because they believe it's impossible to quantify the actions and preferences of billions of individuals. And so they ask Doug Casey, which do you think is more useful and why? Check out Doug Casey's answer. He says, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations at about the time of the American Revolution and really founded the study of economics. But the most influential economist of all time is Karl Marx. His giant three-volume work called Das Kapital includes some interesting observations, but Marx's views lent themselves to the creation of totalitarian societies like the Soviet Union, East Germany, and many others. Now, one of his most interesting observations is the breakdown of all goods into either means of production or consumer goods, which is quite accurate. The problem lies in who Marx thinks ought to own them. He thinks the ideal system is communism, where the collective owns both the means of production and the consumer goods. The means of production are things like factories and farms and mines, things that create new wealth. Consumer goods are things like houses, cars, or clothing. Now, Doug Casey points out there's never been a real communist society. North Korea or China during the Cultural Revolution probably came the closest. Marx posited socialism as the way station to pure communism. And Doug Casey says socialism is a system where the state owns the means of production, but... Private goods are still owned by individuals, so it's theoretically possible to have your own house or car in a socialist country. And he says, although many countries call themselves socialist today, that's a misnomer. The terms communist, socialist, fascist, and capitalist are almost always misused, undefined, or misdefined in today's parlance. So there really aren't any socialist countries left in the world. Every country that tried socialism failed and the means of production wound up being privatized. Why? Because everywhere, including Russia and China, people found that the state runs wealth into the ground. So socialism died because, to use a popular word, it was unsustainable. Now, I have a link to this in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com and I'm going to come back to this just briefly in the next segment, but uh, this is a great thumbnail sketch lesson In economics, in a couple of the the prevalent economic schools of thought, which people are exposed to on a daily basis and, and, and likely don't even recognize. So if you want to become just a little bit better informed, take a look at Doug Casey's commentary. This is really good stuff.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just want to give a very quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner Team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLMO.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. There's a link to each one of these in today's show notes. Right now, I'm sharing a commentary from Doug Casey, who's being asked about uh, economic systems. And particularly, he's explaining how there there aren't a lot of real economists out there. But when asked his preference between the uh, Austrian School of Economics versus other economists out there, the you know, regime economists who are just looking for some kind of uh, of rhetorical cover for whatever it is that politicians want, He's got a great explanation. And when he says that the terms communist, socialist, fascist, and capitalist almost always are either misused or undefined or misdefined in today's parlance, that's a warning for you and I to, well, to be a little more careful in how we apply those words, or at at the very least, to better understand for ourselves what they mean. Something he points out here is that, you know, there's never really been a socialist country in the world because every country that's, that's embraced socialism has failed and their means of production wound up being privatized. But he points out also that the public likes the idea or the ideal of socialism, which is free stuff. You would still hear a lot of young people talking about that today. That's understandable. For instance, they've heard Scandinavia is a socialist utopia, but in fact, it's neither a utopia nor socialist. Its industries are all privately owned. The confusion comes from the fact that it's a welfare state. That's what people really want. Things look free, but they come at the cost of huge taxes. Now, interestingly enough, he says, there are no real capitalist countries in the world. Capitalism is a system where economic matters are regulated by the market instead of by government fiat. Now, that statement deserves some further explanation. He says this really isn't the place, but let me just say that Practically every country in the world today follows the fascist model that Benito Mussolini laid out. Where although both the means of production and consumer goods are privately owned, everything is controlled by the state. So as a system it makes a lot more sense than either communism or socialism, but not nearly as much as capitalism. Because it allows private ownership, it's often confused and conflated with capitalism. Now, at this point, International Man says, look, you've previously called mainstream economists modern-day soothsayers. You've said they're witch doctors who've convinced everyone they are nerd- neurosurgeons. Can you elaborate? Doug Casey says, well, what passes for economics today isn't science. It's more like a religion where dogma is handed down from on high. Economists write abstruse papers, abstruse papers that are used as reasons for the government to step in and do more and... Economists have become actually something of secular, a secular priesthood who interpret the doctrines of various prophets. And, of course, the dominant prophet for the last century has been John Maynard Keynes. Mixing religion with government, he says, is always dangerous. Masses of people usually have to be sacrificed in order to make somebody's idea of magic happen. So International Man then follows up by saying, well, it seems the establishment economists are nothing more than overpaid government apologists and social engineers. They use complex but irreverent, irrelevant rather mathematical models to help politicians show their necessity to society. They help politicians grab more power, which only helps the government grow. This brings to mind Frederick Bastiat, the great French free market economist, who said, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in a society... Over the course of time, they create for, the, for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. And they ask Doug Casey, what's your take? Well, Doug Casey's answer is an example of this would be the Federal Reserve. It started out not as not much more than a formalized clearinghouse for banks to help them process transactions and organize the papering over of temporary bouts of illiquidity. So it didn't look particularly dangerous to start with, but it's morphed into the most dangerous and powerful part of the U.S. government. Tax revenue now only constitutes about half of what the U.S. government spends. The rest is basically printed money facilitated by the Fed. In essence, U.S. government bonds are sold to the Fed, which then deposits dollars in the U.S. government's accounts at commercial banks. So the Fed is theoretically independent of the U.S. government, but at this point, they're joined together like Siamese twins. Now, a follow-up question from International Man is, how can the average person navigate the situation to get an accurate understanding of what's truly happening in the economy? Listen to Doug Casey's answer here. He says you have to educate yourself. And by that, he says, I don't mean you should misallocate four years of time and a couple hundred thousand dollars attending a college to be indoctrinated. He says, take some individual responsibility. Educating yourself amounts to reading and then applying critical thinking to what you read. Which means asking questions and insisting on logical explanations. Where to start? Well, he says, in my opinion, the best done single book that you can read about economics is Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. It's only about 150 pages, and it's a gem. Everybody should read it. After that, it's just a question of how interested you are and how deep you want to go. Anything by Murray Rothbard, Thomas Sowell, or Walter Block is on the list. They're all sound, clear, and cogent writers. He says, I think you'll find stuff by Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, or Joseph Stiglitz unhelpful in understanding how the world works. They're only celebrities. He says, I find Ludwig von Mises too dense. It's as if a German academic, which he was, of course, was writing for other academics. His thoughts are great, but the presentation is hard to absorb. Start with Mises made easier by Percy Greaves. So there you go. A little reading recommendation and... I'm going to confirm what he's saying about uh, von Mises. Holy cow! I started to read uh, Human Action, and uh, I like to read. Don't get me wrong; I, I enjoy reading, and, and and I've even learned to read things that uh, that are above my head and that require effort. But that book was a whole different level of academic talk, and it's it's not gobbledygook. If you if you can take the time to really Force yourself to read through and, and, and only proceed when you understand what's being said. You'll find that there's a great deal of wisdom in what Mises had to say. But I, I agree with Doug Casey's um, characterization of it's it's not something most people are going to find easy to consume. Even the most well-read people, the people who just blaze through books in a day or two and, and have almost perfect retention of what they've read, have every person who's ever read that book and has commented to me on their take on it said, Ooh, that's a hard book. In fact, I think the the phrase "There's a lot of meat on that bone," so once you start uh, gnawing, yeah, you're going to be busy for a while. But I absolutely back him up on the suggestion of economics in one lesson. And if you need to start, you know, if that's if that's well, it's a book, man, 150 pages. When am I going to have time for that? If you want to really wet your feet and just you know get the basics and 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 have that that foundational understanding of of what the free market is all about, get a copy of uh, some of Frederick Bastiat's essays. That which is seen and that which is not seen, beautiful essay. You'll be, you'll be thinking like an economist by the time you've read that essay. If you want to go even more basic, the law by Bastiat is, is another one of those foundational things. Why do we even have government? Why do we even have laws in the first place? I know what I'm describing means, well, does this mean I have to use some of my my leisure time, my spare time when I could be hanging out in my man cave to sit there and read books? Is that what you're suggesting? Actually, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. But you have to ask yourself, what is it worth to me to be a person who actually understands the world around me and how it works? And if the answer is, hey, I, it's important enough that I'm willing to pay the price to do it. Well, then, my friend, you are on the right path. And if it's it's too much work, and besides, I want to play or I need to take a nap. Well, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, I'm. I will say this: the way to freedom includes becoming better informed.
0: So, if you want to be free, you got to pay the price to become better informed. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Please do yourself a favor. Click on the link in my show notes that takes you to lifesavingfood.com. This is a food storage company, and they sell the ReadyWise brand of dehydrated and freeze-dried foods. Look, if you are getting started, if you've looked around and said, I think it might be a good idea to have a food storage program, this is a great place to start. There are plenty of uh, plenty of items in stock. Prices are still relatively low although they have been seeing the costs for food go up just as you've seen it in your grocery store. So so that I guess the key here is don't put it off for too long. But take a look around, see what you could use if you ha- even if you have an existing food storage program, go ahead and take a look and just see what you could use to bolster what you already have or maybe to help some of the people on your gift-giving list. I know people used to shudder at the thought of, food storage? Really? For Christmas? Trust me, it's, it's a gift that people will appreciate. Maybe not in the moment, but I think more and more people look around us and that uncertainty makes them go, hey, maybe that's not a bad idea. Lifesavingfood.com. By the way, get a 25% discount if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. That is for my listeners alone. All right, let's talk a little bit about the direction that we are headed, not just as a culture, not just as a country, but that Western civilization seems to be going. I look around at the news headlines, and, and I'm just in awe at how quickly I've seen different countries just throw away their freedoms in the name of we've got to protect you from the coronavirus. And it should be setting off alarm bells for anybody who's paying attention. One of the things that concerns me deeply is I'm seeing the unfolding of a caste system that threatens the West. And it's, it's a medical caste system. And there's a great article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, that's brownstone.org, that makes the case here. He says, if you test positive or refuse to be tested at all in New Zealand prepare to be shipped out to a quarantine camp recently established by the government. Shocking, yes, but he says we have an analogous system in the U.S. If you test positive, which is not the same thing as actually being sick, you will be removed from school or forbidden from coming into the office. You could lose your job or be refused the opportunity to earn money. Now, in many places, the country and the world where you travel today... In the country, in the world where you travel today, he says you're subject to quarantine unless you can present a clean COVID test. Same thing's happening with vaccines, with new edicts from governments that their cities will be disease-free and no one unvaccinated will be allowed to enter buildings or eat in restaurants. And Jeffrey Tucker says all these policies that stigmatize those perceived to be sick, excluding them from society, follow directly from a strange twist in COVID policies. We started presuming that many or even most people will get the disease, but seeking only to slow the pace at which it spread. So over time, we begin to attempt the impossible, namely to stop the spread altogether. And in the course of it, we've set up systems that punish and exclude the sick, or at least relegate them to second-class status, like a scarlet letter C on their chest, as it were. While the rest of us wait for the virus to go away, either through a vaccine or some mysterious process by which the bug goes into retirement. So he asks, what is really going on here? It is resurrecting what amounts to a pre-modern ethos of how society deals with the presence of infectious disease. And it's not clear whether this is by accident or not. In fact, uh, that the fact that it's happening is indisputable. We're hurling ourselves in fits and starts toward a new system of castes Created in the name of disease mitigation. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says every pre modern society assigned to some group the task of bearing the burden of new pathogens. Usually, the designation of the unclean was assigned based on race or language, religion, or class. There was no mobility out of this caste, they were the dirty, the diseased, the untouchables. Depending on the time and place, they were segregated geographically and the designation followed from generation to generation. Now, this system was sometimes codified in religion or law. More commonly, this caste system was baked into social convention. But he says, in the ancient world, the burden of disease was assigned to people not born as free, that is, part of the class permitted to participate in public affairs. The burden was borne by the workers merchants, and slaves who mostly lived away from the city unless the rich fled the cities during a pandemic. Then the poor suffered while the feudal lords went to their manors in the country for the duration, forcing the burden of burning out the virus on others. From a biological perspective, they served the purpose of operating like sandbags to keep those in the city free of disease. Pathogens were something to be carried and absorbed by them, not us. And the elites were invited to look down upon them even though it was these people, the lower castes, who were operating as the biological benefactors of everyone else. In religious teaching, the classes designated as sick and unclean were also considered unholy and impure. And everyone was invited to believe that their sickness was due to sin. And thus it's correct that we should exclude them from holy places and offices. For instance, we read in Leviticus 21.16... That God ordained that whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man be he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or any anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed, or crook-back, or a dwarf or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. End quote. So when Jesus came to heal the sick, and the lepers in particular, Jeffrey Tucker says it was not only an impressive miracle in itself, it was also something of a social and political revolution. His powers to heal freely moved people from one caste to another, His powers to heal freely, rather, move people from one caste to another just by taking away the stigma of disease. It was an act imparting social mobility, rather, in a society that was very happy to do without. St. Mark, chapter 1, verse 40, records not only a medical act, but a social one. Quote, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And for doing that, Jesus was expelled. He could no more openly enter into the city, but was, all, but was without in desert places. Interesting, right? Now, this was also why Mother Teresa's work in the slums of Calcutta was so politically controversial. She was seeking to care for and heal the unclean as if they are just as deserving of health as anyone else. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says it wasn't until the early 20th century that we understood the brutal scientific intuition behind these cruel systems. It comes down to the need for the human immune system to adapt to new pathogens. Now, there always has been and there always will be new pathogens. Some people or most people have to take the risk of getting sick and acquiring immunity in order to move a virus from the status of epidemic or pandemic to become endemic, that is, predictably manageable. And by the time the pathogen reaches the ruling class, it becomes less life-threatening. The lower classes in this system operate as the tonsils, or kidneys, in the human body, taking on the disease to protect the rest of the body and finally to expel it. Now he says humanity const- constructed these caste systems of disease for all of recorded history until very recently. Slavery in the United States served that very purpose in part. Let those who do the work also bear the burden of sickness, so that the ruling class of slave owners can remain clean and well. Marley F. Weiner's painful book, Sex, Sickness, and Slavery, Illness in the Antebellum South, explains how slaves, owing to the lack of medical care and less sanitary living conditions, bore the burden of sickness far more than white's which in turn invited the defenders of slavery to postulate intractable biological differences that made slavery a natural state of humankind. Health belonged to the elites. Observe it with your own eyes. Disease is for them and not us. Tucker says the great turn from ancient political and economic structures into more modern ones was not only about property rights, commercial freedoms, and the participation of ever greater waves of people in public life. But there was also an implicit epidemiological deal to which we agreed, what Sunetra Gupta describes as an indigenous, endogenous, rather social contract. We agreed that we would no longer designate one group as the unclean and force them to bear the herd of, or the burden rather of herd immunity, so that the elites don’t have to. The ideas of equal freedom, universal dignity, and human rights came with a public health promise too. We will no longer regard one people as fodder in a biological war. We will all participate in building resistance to disease. I got a link to this in the show notes. We'll come back to this article just the other side
0: of our commercial break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing with you an excellent article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. A caste system that threatens the West. And he's talking about the dividing of our society into the clean and the unclean. You can probably guess uh, who the unclean are. And we're going to talk about that actually in the next hour. We're going to talk about the, the changing of definitions. merriam websters actively changing the definition of what it means to be an anti-vaxxer. So if you are up op- in opposition to the idea that we should mandate vaccines for everyone, well, congratulations, my friend. You just made the list. Now, it has to be said here. Look, none of this is denying that we are dealing with this coronavirus and, and a very real pandemic. But as Tucker and others who were associated, for instance, with the Great Barrington Declaration that was signed last year, there are better ways to do this than by simply stripping everybody of their freedoms and locking it down from the top down to, to make sure that people are under absolute control. You don't control a virus through behavior. In Tucker's article here, he says, Martin Koldorf, one of the signatories, one of the creators of the Great Barrington Declaration, speaks of the need for an age-based system of focused Protection. So here's how that works. When the new pathogen arrives, we protect the vulnerable with weak immune systems while asking the rest of society, in other words, the less vulnerable, to build immunity to the point where the pathogen becomes endemic. Think about what category of age implies about the social order. All people grow old, regardless of race, language, social position, or profession. Everyone is thus permitted to enter into the category of the protected. We use intelligence, compassion, and high ideals to shelter those who need it most and for as short a period of time as possible. By now, you can guess the thesis of this reflection. The lockdowns have reverted us back in time from a system of equality, freedom, and intelligence, and they've plunged us back into this feudal system of castes. The ruling class designated the working classes and the poor as the groups that would need to get out there and work in the factories, warehouses, fields, and packing plants, and to deliver our groceries and supplies to our front door. We called these people essential, but we really meant they will build immunity for us while we wait in our apartments and hide from the disease until the infection rate falls and it's safe for us to go out. Now, he says, as an homage to the new unclean and in consideration of the nice things they're doing for us, we will pretend to participate in their plight through perfunctory performances of disease mitigation. We will dress down. We will avoid revelry. We'll wear a mask in public. Very conveniently for the professional class, these little performances are also consistent with the underlying motivation of staying away from the bug and letting others grapple with gaining immunity. The poor and the working class are the new unclean while the professional class enjoys the luxury of waiting the pandemic out, interacting only with disease-free laptops. The Zoom call is the 21st equivalent of the Manor Estate on the Hill, a way to interact with others while avoiding the virus to which the people who keep the goods and services flowing must necessarily be exposed. Tucker says these attitudes and behaviors are elitist and ultimately selfish, even vicious, as for age-based protection, our leaders achieved the opposite. First, they forced COVID-19 patients into long-term care facilities, causing the pathogen to spread where it was least welcome and most dangerous. And second, they prolonged a period of isolation for the survivors by delaying the onset of herd immunity in the rest of the population, spreading loneliness and despair among the elderly. Jeffrey Tucker says lockdowns are the worst of all worlds from the perspective of public health. More than that, lockdowns represent a repudiation of the social contract we made long ago in order to deal with infectious diseases. We worked for centuries to reject the idea that some group, some caste should be permanently assigned the role of getting sick so the rest of us can persist in an immunologically virginal state. We abolished the systems that entrenched such brutality. We decided that this is radically inconsistent with every civic value that built the modern world. Tucker says by reinstating ancient forms of exclusion, disease assignment or avoidance based on class and social stigma of the sick and now vaccine status, the lockdowners have created an astonishing pre-modern catastrophe. Now he has a link here to the great Barrington declaration and says there's more to this than a simple statement of cell biology and public health. The Great Barrington Declaration is also a reminder of a deal that modernity made with infectious diseases. Despite their presence, we will have rights, we will have freedoms, we will have universal social mobility, we will not exclude, we'll include people, and we'll participate in making the world safe for the most vulnerable among us, regardless of arbitrary conditions of race, language tribe or class pretty cool stuff and again i've got a link in the article here i hope you will check it out for yourself i want to go uh, to that uh, redefining of the, the anti-vaxxers this is just a this is from aaron's series uh, substack a majority of americans are anti-vaxxers He says the zealous, often illogical, promotion of vaccines by government appears to have officially turned a majority of Americans into anti-vaxxers, not metaphorically, but apparently literally as a matter of basic English. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines anti-vaxxer as, quote, a person who opposes regulations mandating vaccination. Huh. So if you oppose a vaccine requirement, you are an anti-vaxxer. Welcome aboard, my friend. Well, an official NBC News survey by Heart Research, he says, found 50% of American adults opposed requiring that everyone who's now eligible must get a COVID-19 vaccine. So it appears half of Americans are now officially anti-vaxxers. Now, Aaron Seary says, look, in reality, based on the more common colloquial use of this term, even more Americans are anti-vaxxers. According to mainstream media. If you raise questions about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines, anti-vaxxer. If you raise questions about the efficacy of this vaccine, anti-vaxxer. If you question the FDA, CDC, or the White House guidance on this vaccine, well, you are an anti-vaxxer. If you want pharma companies to be liable for vaccine industries, injuries rather, anti-vaxxer. You want long-term placebo-controlled trials prior to licensure, anti-vaxxer. It's like a cuss word. You raise concerns about breakthrough cases. You know what you are. You think a natural immunity has anything to offer without a vaccine. You're an anti-vaxxer. Aaron Siri says Obamacare was used as a pejorative, pejorative rather, and turned by many into a term of honor. Could it be the same fate that awaits the term anti-vaxxer? That does appear the natural result of retorting with the anti-vaxxer to reasonable and rational questions about these products. Those supporting those vaccines would do much better to actually address the substantive and legitimate questions being raised instead of retorting with anti-vaxxer. So at some point, they're going to make this term a badge of honor, as it may come to mean someone that raises valid questions about certain vaccines and is met with only ad hominem responses. I think it should be your decision. And I'll tell you personally from what I see the the more information that comes out the more I realize oh my goodness now now Fauci's talking about well, well we may have to rechange the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated. So if you've already had two shots but you haven't had a third, you know, haven't had the booster, uh, the point is you're never going to be fully vaccinated unless someone defines it in a way that just happens to fit, you know, how many shots you've had. But I am so grateful that I haven't signed up for this uh, ever-ongoing, you know, regimen of shots. And I don't say that like, you know, the people who've done it, well, they're stupid and they've they've been duped. I'm just saying that there's more evidence coming out that uh, calls into question some of the promises and some of the claims that were made initially about what happens if you take the vax. There are legitimate questions about you know, why Why are we seeing strokes in children? Why are we seeing, you know, athletes fall down with heart problems on the soccer field when they're in the best shape of their life? And I know you're not supposed to ask questions like this. I know that that makes people uneasy, but I don't know. I saw a meme earlier today that uh, kind of jumped out at me, and it says, if your spouse refused to tell you about where they were last night or to answer your questions, what were you doing last night? Until 2076. Would that raise some questions for you? Because that's exactly the kind of thing we're getting from the vaccine companies, from Big Pharma. Well, we'll be happy to release the information on the vaccine, but we want to do it 50 years from now. 55 years from now. In fact, I think they're pushing now for 75 years. If this is really all it's cracked up to be, why don't we get that information out there and let people see for themselves how good it is? And if it's
0: not, well, why should we keep on believing what you're telling us? This is the Brian Hyde Show, a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi
1: there, and welcome to the show. This is a place where we like to revel in wrong think. And by that, I simply mean we like to question the various narratives out there that we are told are the absolute truth, and uh, you must not consider anything else. Look away, citizen! Look away from that story you're reading on the Internet. Look away from that commentator, uh, I would say, on YouTube, but they're pretty good about purging anybody who's, who's questioning the narrative. Citizen, you may not look at these things unless, unless you are told by our fact checkers that it's safe to check it out. See, that sounds a lot like uh, there's, there's some competition for your allegiance, for your mind. So I'll just put my cards on the table and tell you, your mind is your own. I don't presume to tell you what to think. I'm not here to insist that you have to believe whatever you hear on this program. But I do think it's in your best interest to think as clearly and independently as you can, especially because we find ourselves in a time of crisis. And that's when our greatest duty as citizens is to think as clearly and independently as possible. So come find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. You're going to find you're in very good company. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible. These are the people who make it possible for me to do what I do. Whatever that is, sometimes some days I'm not even sure. But they include great sponsors like the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo dot com, dot com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com and Monticello dot org. Well, let's jump right in. I have uh, I've been reading a number of different commentators, and J.B. Shirk, who is a regular writer for, um, I think it's for American Thinker. I'm trying to remember anyway. J.B. Shirk is uh, one of these uh, one of these writers who has just been on fire lately when it comes to uh, to summarizing what is happening. In America, and one of the things he points out here is—and it's not just America, I guess—I should—I should, I should expa- expand this to the West—is that we're being told, you know, that in the name of democracy, we have to uh, take these rights from you in order to protect democracy. I think—I think the president's actually having some kind of a summit. I—I I, I limit my coverage of political news, not because I can't handle it, but just simply because so much of it seems calculated to. Uh, to make me upset or to make me feel uh, angry. So if it doesn't add value, I, I exercise my option not to, uh, not to partake of it. But I like what J.B. Shirk has to say here. He says, A big part of the Great Reset is its orchestrated campaign to condition people into believing that they have no natural rights, separate from and paramount to the mandates of government. Sounds about right. Most neoliberal nations no longer talk about the global ideological struggle once pitting free and controlled states against each other. Why? Because that distinction makes little sense when Australia is hunting down citizens for fleeing its quarantine concentration camps and Finland is putting Christianity on trial. He says, I'm trying to remember, who won the Cold War again? See, instead of admitting that they're waging war against free speech... Western governments claim, well, we're just protecting our people from, by censoring misinformation that might cause social harm or disinformation that might be coming from Russia or China. It's for your own good to let political bureaucrats first determine what arguments people may consider and which ideas should be quickly stricken from the public conversation. He says people with power, you see, are naturally endowed with extra genetic abilities that allow them to distinguish fact from fiction and they can always be trusted to monitor misinformation with such impartiality and acumen that political calculation never remotely interferes with their benevolent duty to censor only what is bad. Hillary Clinton calls it necessary gatekeeping to protect the masses from seeing and thinking scary things. And that woman is a paragon of truth and virtue, so she must have our best interests at heart. Of course, Western governments believe in free speech, so long as that speech has been officially inspected, prodded, and approved by political committee. It's perfectly normal for freedom to feel like a colonoscopy. (laughs) That is such a great line. Sure, you can practice your faith, engage in commerce to make a living, and associate with like-minded citizens to protest the policies of your government, except during a pandemic. Then all bets are off. Oh, you didn't know that super-secret carve-out to your rights? Well, it's for your own good. We're trying to save lives here. Tell you what, we'll have some of our trusted government medical advisors announce when the pandemic is over and it's safe for freedom to return. They're scientists, and therefore not only unbiased and trustworthy, but also above political influence and self-interest. Truly, they are the priests of the modern age. So nobody should doubt their judgment in making wise decisions that affect av- every, av- absolutely every aspect of each citizen's life. Ooh, bad news, friends. Our priests inform us that there are new pandemics of uncontrollable racism and unpredictable weather heading our way. And you figured out what happens during government-declared pandemics, right? That's correct. All your rights get put back into storage for use at a later time. So sorry. Now, J.B. Shirk says, do you think having such flexible standards for safeguarding constitutionally protected rights in their own backyards might make it a little more difficult for NATO countries to repudiate the crimes of authoritarians around the world? For instance, U.S. lawmakers are outraged that Beijing should be allowed to host the 2022 Winter Olympics when the communist dictatorship is locking people up for merely exercising their most basic freedoms. Meanwhile, a large number of Americans who showed up at a political rally in January to exercise their freedoms of speech and assembly and protected right to petition their government for a redress of grievances, specifically their contention that the 2020 presidential election was conducted fraudulently to put Biden in the White House. These people have been rounded up by the FBI forced to endure wretched jail conditions and alleged torture from the guards, and left languishing in solitary confinement without bail for most of the last year in order to face charges that amount to nothing more serious than trespassing within the people's house. Of course, because the federal government has decided that the First Amendment exists only when it's not too much of a bother for the ruling aristocracy to tolerate... These political prisoners are receiving punishments more severe than a lot of rapists and murderers. So Congress has decided it's virtuous to posture against China's human rights abuses while simultaneously disregarding those perpetrated at its behest just outside its doors. Is it possible for one world power that falsely brands trespassers as insurrectionists? to marshal the requisite moral legitimacy to call out another world power for falsely rebranding genocide as a war against terrorism? Of course not. Only hypocrites condemn tyranny abroad while embracing it at home, but that's where we are today. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, there's going to be a lot of discussion in the future about how formerly free countries became so totalitarian in their outlooks. By and large, they did so through a quiet linguistic sleight of hand that replaced the language of freedom with the language of democracy. He says, for several hundred years, Westerners have fought first and foremost for freedom while pushing democratic forms of government as procedural mechanisms for keeping power in check. But freedom is not democracy. And until quite recently, most people understood this obvious truth. If you take 100 people and 51 of them can vote to close your business, how free can you possibly feel? What if they decree that you must pray each day to a framed picture of the great Fauci hanging on the wall? How about if that slim majority decides you shouldn't be allowed to speak your mind and chooses to cut out your tongue instead? What happens when they vote to take away your property, burn your Bible, or chop off your head for backing the wrong leader? He says at some point, let's hope even the most ardent defenders of democracy might come to the correct conclusion just before the guillotine's blade comes crashing down that inalienable rights and liberties are the true cornerstones of any free society. Because without those, a simple majority can be every bit as bloody and unjust as even the worst tyrant. And when it's your head about to fall into the basket, you might very well prefer the d- benevolent dictator to the authoritarian democracy cheering on your demise. Gotta tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but does that not ring true? The language of freedom has been swapped out for the language of democracy. We hear all politicians giving great lip service to democracy. Very, very few politicians speak the language of freedom. And as someone who has spent uh, the better part of his life studying the principles and practices of freedom, I may not be an expert, but I can tell when someone speaks the dialect of freedom.
0: That's not what most politicians speak. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing an article here from J.B. Shirk. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. It's, uh, this is a pretty good piece. The opposite of tyranny is not democracy. Something that uh, I guess most of us could be forgiven for believing, simply because that's, that's how our politicians talk. That's how our media talks. That's that's how we have shifted. And it's important to understand that distinction. In essence, says J.B. Shirk, Western governments have initiated a silent campaign to find and replace freedom with democracy in order to rewrite history and to dilute the public's protected powers and expand government control. Just days ago. D.C. Judge Amy Berman Jackson lectured one of the political prisoners being held by the federal government by actually arguing that the American War for Independence concerned people who went on to form a democracy and that the point of 1776 was to let the people to decide who would rule them. So we have another federal judge who knows so little about the U.S. Constitution and America's history that she erroneously thinks that both we are a democracy and that the Revolutionary War was fought so people could erect a system under which they would be ruled over in perpetuity. He's got a point here. That revolution was about we will rule ourselves because the king was doing such a crappy job of trying to rule over us. Now, neither is remotely correct, says J.B. Shirk. Neither of this, this judge's sentiments. Yet now, yet only by pretending that inalienable rights are non-existent and that power exists not with the people but with the ruling class, can another daft judge reframe something as American as a political rally as if it were something strangely foreign and unprecedented? He says it's Judge Jackson whose ignorance betrays the spirit of 1776. Yet she knows no better because she exists as part of the same ruling class committed to swapping the idea of freedom with the idea of democracy before the public figures out that it's lost. Or what it's lost, I should say. So he says, ask yourself this, though. If protecting democracy requires obeying an entrenched ruling class, then why haven't we just replaced the chains of English monarchy with the chains of, uh, or haven't we just replaced English monarchy with the chains of American oligarchy? Okay, fair question. If so, then don't let those with power redefine rights into suggestions, or the value of those rights will continue to depreciate just as quickly as the fiat money controlled by governments too. Again, there's a link to this in the show notes at the Briananhideshow dot com. I've really enjoyed what I've read recently from J.B. Shirk. I'll be keeping an eye on this guy for for a while too. I think he's got a pretty good slant on what's happening. Moving on, is it just me, or does it seem like every time the sense of crisis starts to ebb in the public's mind, a new variant starts to dominate the news cycle? Because that's that's really how this Omicron variant or viral uh, variant seems to have been rolled out. And in fact, you're actually starting to see a little bit of of walking back of, well, you know, maybe these travel restrictions were a little bit hasty. But boy, the alarmists, the Omicron alarmists are just having a heyday. Got a great article here from Adam Mill. This was published in amgreatness.com. Omicron alarmist delight subtitle is having missed out on the opportunity during the first wave of pandemic panic panic as they busied themselves with impeachment theatrics. Democrats are ready for it now. And he recalls Speaker Pelosi, you know, as they were getting ready to to impeach President Trump. I don't know which time, but so today we will make history. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi intoned somberly over the chatter of camera shutters When the House managers walk down the hall, they will cross a threshold in history delivering articles of impeachment against the President of the United States for abuse of power and obstruction of the House. One day earlier, on January 14th of 2020, Science.org had reported on a new SARS-like virus found in China. The speaker's pomp and circumstance notwithstanding, history seems to have taken more interest in the virus than in her impeachment farce. Much like a Midwestern driver speeding through summer darkness, it's not always immediately clear whether the object approaching one's windshield is a deer or just another bug splat in the night. To the thinking of Pelosi and so many others, the impeachment hearing over some phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president was supposed to be the crash through the windshield of history. But in contrast, the virus from the obscure province in China, they figured, would splat harmlessly and with little notice. Now, it's worth remembering how difficult it can be to gain perspective of historic events as they fly toward our proverbial windshield. Pelosi, who has an uncanny ability to predict stock performance, that's tongue-in-cheek, by the way, usually misses the boat when it comes to assessing the long-term significance of news stories. Thus, when her party raises new alarm over the new Omicron variant pronounced, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening again, Macron. We should judge for ourselves whether we're in the midst of another bloody mess like the one few foresaw in January of 2020. Now here the author says it's possible, and I know this sounds crazy, that the Omicron variant actually represents good news. And he says, hear me out. Adam Mills says, early signs indicate that the Omicron variant lacks the death-dealing symptoms of its predecessors, yet spreads much more quickly than even the fast-moving Delta variant. Even the sainted Dr. Anthony Fauci finds himself backpedaling on the reflexive fear-mongering, saying it does not look like there's a great deal of severity to it. Thus, it seems possible that the Omicron could spread natural immunity quickly and relatively harmlessly through the population, and God willing, we can be done with this. Now, One South African doctor, who helped address the very earliest cases of Omicron, reported that the symptoms of Omicron were, quote, very mild. Now, this, of course, will not stand. Fear is the currency of power, and nobody's going to bend the knee just to avoid an evening of chills and fatigue. CNN, seeking to prop up its own relevancy, has again hit the well-worn panic button. On Saturday, Dr. Megan Raney published an opinion piece describing the Omicron variant as dreaded. Instead of focusing on the mild symptoms, the doctor sowed panic, warning it's not looking good. One preliminary model suggests that Omicron spreads twice as easily as the Delta variant. This is the reason many of us scientists are warning people to mask up in public and go get their booster. So do masks work? Well, that question will always start an argument. Does the booster work against Omicron? Ranny admitted we don't know whether boosters have any effect on the new variant. The Biden administration has announced new measures to combat the virus, which look a lot like the old measures from 2020. And these appear to include pan, plans rather for booster mandates to ensure that the nearly 100 million eligible Americans who have not yet gotten their booster shot get one as soon as possible. But again, do the work, do the boosters work on Omicron? Stop asking questions, science denier. Further, the Biden administration will expand vaccinations of children to protect against Omicron. So are the risks of Omicron to children more or less deadly than the chance of vaccine inf- the vaccine inflicting heart damage like myocarditis or pericarditis? Now, that seems like a relevant question. But social media nevertheless censors virtually anything or any reporting on its side effects as misinformation. Remember when they censored stories about the Hunter Biden laptop or the censorship of the Wuhan lab leak origin hypothesis? Or when social media didn't censor blatant falsehoods about the Kyle Rittenhouse Kenosha shootings? But they did censor posts supporting Rittenhouse and suppressed efforts to raise funding for the ultimately innocent Rittenhouse. See, that censorship, ironically, makes information more credible and destroys the clash of ideas that are vital to informing the Democratic electorate. Got a link to this article in the show notes. I'm going to come back to it just the other side of our break.
0: Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, I want to thank
1: you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I want to uh, give some love here to one of my sponsors. That would be the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, they're located in St. George, Utah, 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her office. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715 386 And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Why should you count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Let's just say that homes don't stay on the market right now for very long. The competition is very fierce. The inventory is very low. If you find the home of your dreams, you need to get your financing or have your financing in order. So instead of, you know, waiting a few days, okay, well, let's see if we can qualify for this. Know where you're going to be. Know what you have in hand. And go in with confidence that, yep, we've got this. Time is of the essence, and that's why you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm sharing this article from Adam Mill, and this is about the Omicron alarmists are having a heyday, meaning the power seekers are taking full advantage right now. He points out how the Biden administration is planning to launch a new public education campaign to encourage adults to get boosters with a special emphasis on the skeptical communities of color. Interesting. It's hard to imagine anyone in America could escape the constant drumbeat of education that saturates our airwaves and electronic media. Now, clearly, Pelosi misdiagnosed the January 20th moment in history in which she found herself impeaching then-President Trump for something about a phone call. Well, she's not going to miss out on the panic this time. She recently urged Americans that our message is that we have to respect governments, meaning vaccine mandates. Now, most reasonably intelligent Americans make choices about risk every day, says Adam Mill. Mandates and censorship deprive individuals of the ability to make their own informed decisions. Even more troubling, nearly one in three healthcare workers who work in the medical field are still refusing to get vaccinated, in spite of presumably having the best access to information. Indeed, the 1 in 3 rate appears to be slightly higher than that of the general population. So why are so many doctors and nurses anti-science? None of this builds confidence in the dictates of bureaucrats who've wrested real power away from elected governments. Boom. Well done, Adam Mill. I want to shift gears here for a moment and uh, talk a little bit about abortion, since this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. The Supreme Court's considering a case that could lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Abortion's a hot topic. I understand it's a very controversial topic, but I wanted you to hear what Judge Andrew Napolitano has to say about abortion and the Constitution. He starts with a quote from uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. This is from December 1st of this year. The fetus has an interest in having a life. And Judge Napolitano says last week's oral argument in the Supreme Court about abortion was both humdrum and arcane. Humdrum because we already knew where the nine justices stand on the morality of abortion. Arcane because the questions and answers were largely not about abortion but about stare decisis. The legal doctrine that calls for settled law not to be lightly disturbed. What brought this about? Okay, here's the background. Mississippi has enacted into law a statute that prohibits abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, that statute directly conflicts with two major Supreme Court opinions on abortion, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision establishes a trimester system during which the state's interest in protecting the life of the baby in the womb does not come into being until the third trimester of pregnancy. More importantly, Roe holds that the states may not ban abortions prior to fetal viability, roughly at the end of the first trimester around 23 weeks. The Casey opinion 19 years after Roe and with a largely different membership in the court upheld Roe's no abortions until viability standard and added a new rule that prohibited the states from imposing any undue burden on mothers seeking abortions. Thus, Mississippi and Texas, which prohibits abortions after six weeks, right behind it is effectively asking the court to overrule both Roe and Casey. Now, the Mississippi argument states that because the Constitution is silent on abortion or any kind of killing, its framers must have intended to leave regulation of those subjects to the states. The counter argument is that women have personal autonomy over their bodies, and that autonomy trumps any state interest at any time. Now, Judge Napolitano says, when the Roe court established the bright line of viability as the point before which no state could prohibit the taking of the taking the life of the baby in the womb. It did so without legal justification or scientific basis. We know from the posthumously released notes of revealed notes of Justice Harry Blackman, author of the Roe decision. Yet an unwanted pregnancy is just as unwanted the day before viability as it is the day after. Viability has been the bright line for 48 years, and during that time, over 62 million abortions have been performed in the U.S. in reliance upon it. So can the court change the bright line, and if so, should it? That was the essence of the argument last week, but that argument largely misses the constitutional point. There is nothing constitutional about viability. Justice Blackman made it up out of thin air, and six other members of the court accepted it. Just as Justice Sandra, Sandra Day O'Connor made up undue burden out of thin air in Casey. The constitutional point here is whether the baby in the womb is a person. Roe itself concedes in the text of the opinion that if the baby is a person with an interest in having a life, as Justice Samuel Alito Jr. put it during oral arguments, then Roe falls. That's because the 14th Amendment prohibits states from taking life, liberty, or property from any persons without due process, meaning a jury trial at which the state would need to prove fault. Such a demonstration would be impossible in the case of a baby in the womb. As well, the same amendment also requires equal protection of laws. Since all laws protect life by enacting laws against homicide, they must enforce those laws equally so as to protect all persons from being murdered, irrespective of age or physical dependency. Now, Napolitano says the linchpin to the application of the 14th Amendment jurisprudence to abortion is the concept of personhood. If that fetus is a person, The mother and her physicians may not lawfully kill the fetus any more than they could lawfully kill the father of the fetus. This is why the debate over viability misses the point. The court should have passed over the argument about viability and moved into the only constitutional issue here, personhood. Is the fetus in the womb a person? Judge Napolitano says, of course she is. The growing baby has human parents and all the genomic material within her tiny body to develop and mature into a postnatal child. The fetus, through a guardian, can be sued and sue, can inherit assets and even bequeath them. These truisms and legal principles were known to the framers when they wrote the Constitution and to the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment. Now he says this business of denying personhood can be dangerous beyond compare. In 1857, the Supreme Court infamously held in Dred Scott v. Sanford, that African Americans were not persons, and thus they could not sue for legal protection and could be brought as slaves into free territory. The German Nuremberg Laws in the 1930s hatefully declared that Jews were not persons and therefore had no legal rights. We all know where these horrific principles brought us a war that killed more Americans than all other wars combined, and a holocaust of catastrophic proportions. So Judge Napolitano asks, do the justices have the moral courage to recognize babies in the womb as persons? He says, I doubt it though my college, uh, my college classmate, Justice Alito, seems to be going that direction. Yet making such a declaration, broad and sweeping so as to cover all humans at all times and under all circumstances, would put to bed once and for all the debates over the rights of all, from babies in the womb to foreign detainees in American foreign jails. All offspring of human parents are endowed with natural rights that they may enjoy and for the exercise of which they can require governmental protection. Napolitano says this is the only valid moral purpose of government. Absent unanimous consent of the governed, it is to protect the lives, liberty, and property of all persons. I mean, there are people who will strongly disagree with him on this, but I just think he says it as as simply and beautifully as it could be said. Of course, there is a link to this in the show notes, which you'll find at thebryanhideshow.com. Hey, if you want to access those show notes, in fact, if you want me to just go ahead and email a copy of them to you, hit the subscribe button when you go to my website. I'll add you to the list, and I can send you some great reading material each and every day that I do this program.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show, and just like that, we are back.
1: I hope that uh, you're finding some good food for thought in today's program. My show notes are there for anybody who wants to take a little bit deeper dive into any of these topics. And I want you to understand that when I when I go to uh, taking, you know, what what do I want to share on the show today? I'm trying to find things that are compelling. I want things that are relevant. I try to stay away from the sensational just because uh, it's it's so superficial. You know, whipping people's emotions into a frenzy. I've done it. I'm guilty of that. I've done it before. Throwing red meat, absolutely. Why would people do stuff like that? Well, uh, in a nutshell, because it works. But I believe that we have a little bit higher opportunity here than simply, hey, let's get really riled up and start chanting in unison, you know, which is unfortunately where, where a lot of people are willing to draw the line and say, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be mad and I want to be chanting bumper sticker slogans with people who are mad just like me, my friends who hate the same things that I do. See, I'm not here to encourage you to hate or to even feel angry and certainly not to start chanting in unison. I want you to think about these things and delve into them because it matters to you. Not because, well, Brian said I ought to do this and uh, he seems like a nice enough guy. I should probably do that. Nope. I'm speaking up on a daily basis because I really feel like I have a duty to do this. I was talking with my friend Eric Moutsos yesterday. and Eric, I, I think, is just a wonderful example of someone who... Didn't really want to be in the spotlight, but found himself there. And in so, uh, you know, in looking around and evaluating, why am I here? You know, this is something he took to God. And he says, you know, I feel the calling. And I I know there are others who feel this too. To stand up and just to to the best of your ability to be a source of light. This is a time when we need more light. So, That's what I'm trying to accomplish on a day-to-day basis. I am joined by lots of other great people trying to do the same thing in their own way. And ultimately what I'm trying to do here is, is not so much, you know, convince you to my school of thought or, you know, come be my follower. Rather, I'm trying to convince you to become a source of light in your own right and in your own circle of influence. Because we need more leaders. We don't need more followers. The fact that you're listening to this program, to me, is a pretty good indicator you're probably one of those leaders, whether you want to believe it or not. But uh, do you hear that call? Maybe listen a little bit closer. All right, going to shift gears for just one last time here. Talk a little bit about how, you know, Western civilization definitely has its strengths, but it also has some weaknesses, And Paul Rosenberg, in a column that he wrote back in 2017, talked about the dirty trick that's destroying us. He says, every civilization has its own peculiar characteristics, and because of them, each civilization has its own vulnerable areas. In other words, areas that a clever adversary can take advantage of, and Western civilization is no exception. He says, most unfortunately, we've been under a sharp attack for many years by people who found our weakness And are exploiting it. So he says I'll explain how and what we need to do about it. Western civilization was built upon the Judeo Christian tradition, and primarily on the Christian tradition. Anyone who claims differently simply doesn't understand the civilization or doesn't want to. Now whether or not the doctrines of Judaism and Christianity are true, these are the foundations of our civilization. Now, just to be clear, Greece and Rome are not part of Western civilization. Those civilizations were based upon slavery, which Western civilization removed because of its new morals. Did we borrow from them? Sure we did. Just like we borrowed writing from the Sumerians and alphabet from the Phoenicians. That really can't be disputed. But he says these principles, like compassion for the outsider, forgiveness and loving your neighbor are demands for enlightened and righteous action in the world. So how do you subvert people in a culture that's centered on righteous action? Well, the answer is you convince them of sin, of course. You find one way after another to make them feel like they and their civilization have failed to be righteous. That's the weak point. Then you convince them that they need to absolve themselves in ways that suit your agenda. Is any of this sounding familiar? Paul Rosenberg asks, have you noticed that the guilt slingers always have a preset conclusion for you? A single thing you must do to absolve the guilt they've tossed upon you. So here's an example. An imposer of guilt says, your community has allowed sewage to be poured into the river. And along with that comes an either-or solution. A new regulatory agency must be given sweeping powers and if you don't agree, well, You favor sewage and drinking water. Paul Rosenberg says this trick has been eviscerating the West for decades. There's even a well-known school of thought known as critical theory that promotes this. Yes. It's the same theory that's being taught to your kids or is trying to be shoehorned into their schools. And Rosenberg says these people have dedicated themselves to criticizing everything possible about Western civilization and have prospered by it. Their tool is weaponized guilt. The West's kryptonite. So if we're going to survive as a civilization, and he says, I think we really, really should, we must stop being suckers to everyone with a fresh criticism. These people are not trying to build. They're trying to tear down. Stated differently, he says, we must stop believing that we suck because we don't. So how to ditch the guilt? Well, he says, we, we ditch our guilt by facing up to what we've done in the past. And we can start that process by giving ourselves credit for the good things we've done. We're not supposed to pretend that those things never happened. We're supposed to feel good about them. Secondly, we need to face the things we've actually done wrong and fix them. If you were unfair or cruel or whatever, gather up your guts and go fix it. Go to the person you hurt and apologize. Make a public statement if you must. Restore what was lost any way you can. If that's hard or embarrassing, tough. Do it anyway. We become suckers for guilt when we leave our errors in an unfixed state. We can fool others, but we know what we've done, and we know that we, we know what we haven't repaired. And that state of mind makes us vulnerable to guilt. So he says, face your errors and fix them. Adding to our troubles is the fact that huge swaths of modern Christianity focus on telling people how badly they suck. It's how they evangelize. He says, I'll pass up a dissertation on how Christianity has strayed from its roots, but I'd like you to understand that Jesus' message was not, you suck. In one place, he repeats and defends the saying, you are God's. In In another, he says that God loves us as much as God loved him. Jesus, but regardless of theology, we need to ditch the guilt. So if you've done something bad, fix it, then fix yourself so you don't repeat it. But after that, stop complying with people who trade with you trade in guilt. So I guess the takeaway from this is just remember guilt plus politics is a toxic mixture. It serves to dethrone reason and to transfer power to clever abusers. Paul Rosenberg says, don't concede good intentions to people who wield this weapon against you. They aim to chop things down, not to repair them. So he says, let me make this very clear. Guilt mixed with politics is poison. It's a weapon designed to destroy Western civilization. So repair your errors and reject the guilt. Now, some people think that that is just how could how could you deny you know what uh, what you've done, but I think he's got a good point here, and something that you have to remember too. And this is looking back at all the people who have lived up to this point, all the people who paved the way before us. If we're tempted to portray them as, as angels compared to ourselves, we're probably wrong. Likewise, if we're if we're tempted to to say that they were nothing but devils. That's also wrong. They were neither entirely one or the other. Like us, they found themselves born into a world where there were imperfections and where there were things that were good and there were things that were bad. But for the most part, they were trying to do the best they could under those circumstances. And whatever blind spots they have should serve as a very strong warning to us. We have those same blind spots. Maybe not the exact same blind spot, but we have our own blind spots. I'm still having a really hard time believing that uh, someday future civilizations are going to look at us and say, you know, they were really off track until they finally, you know, enacted uh, Drag Queen Story Hour. But boy, then from that point on, American civilization was just as right as rain. So, let's lose the sense of moral superiority. Yes, a little slug of humility might do us some good. And I like Rosenberg's advice. If you did something wrong, own it, fix it, and move on. But do not let the people who are wielding guilt control you through that guilt.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.